Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Today we're listening to Murder in a Midrashic Key, Kind's Transformation in Midrash, with Raftali Adler. In the book of Breshit, there are so many complex characters, but Cain is not one of them. As a character, he falls kind of flat. But Raftali is going to show us a whole world of Midrash that gives him more depth and even goes as far as to read Cain, the first murderer, as a religious role model. Let's listen in. We're going to be learning tonight about one, strangely one of my favorite characters in the Torah, Cain. And specifically, Cain through the lens of a certain strand of Midrash. Before we jump in, I'd like to just take people's temperature. When you hear the name Kayan, what are your immediate associations for you? For you, what, what does Kayan represent? How do you feel about him? Let's put some of those responses in the chat. First murder, first murder. Wandering, unable to control his rage. First person to offer something to God, interesting, impulsiveness, sad character, God's forgiveness, stigma, lost relationship with the land, outcast, I feel sad for him, envy, marked, am I my brother's keeper, chosen, first sibling rivalry, rivalry, the mark, communication breakdown, sibling rivalry, resentment. His English name, I think we just say Cain generally for his English name. Someone nod to confirm that for me, please. Yes, good. I have the nods. That is what we generally say. Tonight, we're going to be looking at a midrash that picks up on the strand of forgiveness. And the argument that I want to make tonight is that the midrash in painting Kayan's story through the lens of sin and forgiveness is actually giving us Cain as a paradigm for each one of us. Meaning the Midrash is painting a picture in which Cain is ultimately every one of us in the moments after our worst possible day and going forward. Let's take a look at how the Midrash does that. We are not going to start in what I might call the more commonly juicy midrashic parts of the story. Meaning, the story of Cain and Hebel, of Cain and his brother, is full of mystery. There are gaps in the text. And those are places that midrash traditionally loves. Midrash loves the gaps. It gives fertile, creative ground. Let's just name a few of those gaps. Why does God reject Cain's offering in favor of Hebel's? What's happening there? When God comes and says to Cain those famous words, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Those words, what does God actually mean in those words? They're famously hard to translate and I would say even more difficult to understand. We have in verse 8, Cain said to his brother, Hevel, and when they were out in the field. We have a gap there. What on earth did Cain say to his brother in one of the most 
dramatic moments in biblical history. And the Midrash jumps in again and again to fill those gaps. That isn't what we'll be looking at today. We're going to be picking up with the moment after the murder and go from there. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Havel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Let's pause for a moment. I know that most of us have seen this story time and time again. I know that you know how this story plays out. Right now, we're going to imagine we are seeing this story for the first time. God catches Cain in the act, asks him, where's your brother? Cain pretends that he doesn't know. God tells Cain that God knows exactly what happened. God tells Cain what his punishment will be. If you were reading this story for the first time, what would you expect would happen next? So we have, I think, two fundamentally different strands here. One strand is saying Cain should do what most people in this situation would do, plead, beg for mercy, explain himself, accept responsibility. And other people are saying, no, God appeared, told Cain exactly what he did, this should be the end of the story. He gets punished and that's the end. God kills Cain, something along those lines. And what I want to remind us is that there's a very good argument to be made for that imagining. That imagining that God says the punishment and that's the end. The punishment just happens. We've seen that before in this book. We've seen it with Adam. We've seen it with Adam, Chava, the serpent. If you believe that, and let's say an author has a style, you've seen this story play out once again. You get to this point in the story. You say, aha, I know exactly what the author is going to do here. I know that Cain is going to get his punishment and we're going to move on to the next thing. But that's not what happens. And that's important. Let's open the text back up. Cain said to the Lord, and when we read this this time, I want you to read those words as possibly one of the biggest surprises that the Torah gives you until now. Ve'yomer Cain el Hashem, Cain said to the Lord, those are surprise words. Those should not be what you expect to happen next in the story if you've been paying attention to the stories beforehand, if you are paying attention to the stories of Adam and Chava. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the, pres from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We have a surprise ending. Cain looks at God and says, Gadol my punishment is too much to bear, or perhaps my sin is too much to bear. And God 
listens and God revises the original plan. God gives protection to Cain. There are two ways that the Midrash traditionally reads Cain's response. We're going to see first the path that we are not going to take tonight, which reads Cain's response to God as one of total chutzpah. How dare you? How dare you speak to God like this? And actually, we'll go back and reread the words in the tone that the Midrash is offering. Cain said to God, I killed Hevel, but you created in me the evil inclination. You are the guardian of everything, and you let me kill him, so you killed Hevel. If you would have accepted my sacrifice like his, I would not have been jealous of him. This is the Midrash Tanhuma. It's not actually my fault, God. It's actually your fault. And I think that most of us are probably unsympathetic to Cain up until he gets to the point with, where he says, if you would have accepted my sacrifice like his, I would not have been jealous of him. I think some of us might start to feel a little bit of sympathy at that point. God responded, what have you done? The blood of your cr brother cries out from the ground. Cain said to God, do you have rumor mongers in heaven? My mother and, fa my mother and father who are on earth do not know that I killed Hevel. You are in heaven. How do you know? God said to him, crazy one, I shouldered the entire world. Cain responded, you shouldered the entire world and you cannot bear my sin? Now, let's go back and reread that line. Gadol Adonim Miniso. This is verse 13. The Midrash is reading this line in a new light. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That's one translation. The Hebrew actually is more ambiguous than that. Gadol My sin is too much to bear. Too much for who to bear, the Midrash asks. And it says, Cain is actually saying to God, is my sin too much for you to bear? Are you, God, actually incapable of bearing my sin? One view of Cain. One view of this conversation, Cain actually does not take responsibility. Cain blames God again and again. Let's look at the second view. This is the Yalkut Shimoni. The Yalkut Shimoni is a relatively late work of Midrash, and because of that, often gives emotional detail that you won't necessarily always get in earlier Midrash. It's one of my favorites. And Cain went out. This is on the, one of the final verses in the story. And Cain went out. Whence did he go out? From where did he go out? How did he go out? Rabbi Yudan said in Rabbi Aibu's name, it means that he threw the words behind him and went out like one who would deceive the Almighty. How did he go out? He goes out still trying to lie, still trying to deceive God. If he sounds contrite at this point, it's because he's trying to fool God into thinking that he's repentant. That's Rabbi Yudat's opinion. Rabbi Barakia said in Rabbi Elazar ben Rabbi Shimon's name, he went forth like one who shows the cloven hoof, like one who deceives his creator. This is picking up on the rabbinic understanding of pigs. Why are pigs so problematic? because they have split hooves, but they do not chew their cud. So they present themselves as kosher. Look, I have kosher split hooves. 
but in actuality, they're not kosher. So he went forth like one who shows the cloven hoof, like someone who's trying to show that they're kosher when actually they're not, like one who deceives his creator. Now we're going to get to a fundamentally different understanding of this story, how the story ends, and who Kain is. Rabbi Chama said in the name of Rabbi Hanina in Rabbi Yitzchak's name, he went forth rejoicing. As you read, he goes forth to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Okay, let's look at what the Midrash just did. How did he go out? He went out happy. How do I know this? Because I have another place in the Torah where it talks about someone going out. And in that place in the Torah where it talks about someone going out, it says he's going out to meet you and he's happy in his heart. Now, one tool for understanding Midrash is paying attention when the Midrash uses intertext. Let's pause for a moment here. Does anyone remember where that verse is from? Who that verse is talking about? The one that it cites? He will go forth, forth to meet you and when he sees you, he'll be happy in his heart. Great, Aaron. Aaron coming to meet Moshe after the burning bush. Why is that important? Great. Dorothy Richmond says, Aaron coming to meet Moshe, the tikkun of brothers and sibling rivalry. The Midrash has just done something that should stun us. While talking about the end of Cain's story, the end of brother who kills brother, it cites a verse from the first time we see a story of brothers in the Torah where they unambiguously love each other, where there is no striving, where there's no rivalry. And that already should start to give you the beginnings of a glimmer of hope when you read this midrash. Let's continue. Adam met him and asked him, how did your case go? Adam, his father, knows what it is to be in trouble with God. Adam, Cain's father, knows what it's like when God confronts you. And the midrash gives us this image of Adam, the nervous father, hovering off to the side waiting for Cain to come out from wherever he is with God, desperate to find out what happened, what's going to be the fate of his son. And Cain replies, I repented and I'm reconciled. Thereupon Adam began beating his face, crying, so great is the power of repentance, and I did not know. Adam is looking at Cain and saying, your story is ending differently. I didn't know that there was this thing called tshuva. Tshuva is actually, in this reading, discovered by Cain. Because up until this moment, we would have expected the story to end with God's punishment. And then we have the words, and Cain said. And Cain said introduces an entirely new concept to the Torah in the reading of this midrash. And that's the idea of tshuva. That's the idea that there actually may be a way to come back when you've done something wrong. And Adam is stunned to hear this. He, he's baffled, he's astonished, he's joyful. 
Immediately he arose and exclaimed, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It is a good thing to make confession unto the Lord. And to really understand this, we'll have to look at it in the Hebrew. Immediately Adam stood and said, Now this song, Psalm 92, its translation actually, the way the, the, way the plain meaning of the psalm goes, is, is it, it is good to praise the Lord. It is good to offer praise to God. But the Midrash here is punning on that because lehodot can also mean to confess. So the Midrash is saying, what is that psalm actually about? That psalm is actually about confession. And that, song, that psalm is actually about the power of tshuva. And who wrote it for the first time? Adam did. Adam did at the moment that he discovered tshuva from his son Cain. Let's finish the midrash and then we're going to pause and take reactions. Rabbi Levi said, Adam said this song. It was subsequently forgotten by his generation and Moshe came and rewrote it in his name. This is part of a group of psalms that are traditionally attributed to Moshe. So Rabbi Levi is saying, this psalm was forgotten and then rediscovered. And who was it rediscovered by? It was actually rediscovered by Moshe. Now, we should all have a few questions in our minds at this point. Why that psalm specifically? Meaning, there's a very nice pun that happens there. The lahodot can mean both to confess and to offer praise. But that still doesn't feel strong enough to say, aha, Adam wrote this and then it was forgotten. Moshe came and rewrote it. Why is the text drawing our attention specifically to that Mizmor, to that psalm, which starts with Mizmor Shirley Yom HaShabbat, a psalm in praise of the Sabbath day? And what is the Midrash trying to tell us by telling us that it was forgotten and then rewritten by Moshe? Those are the questions that we're going to be exploring in the rest of our time tonight. Let's finish off the Midrash and then we'll take reactions and questions, and then we'll take the rest of our time to explore what is the Midrash doing by drawing us to this particular Psalm, and what is it doing by drawing us to Adam wrote it, it was forgotten, and then rediscovered by Moshe. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Nehemiah argued. Rabbi Huda says God made the sunshine for him. What's, what's the mark of Cain? Rabbi Huda said that God made the sunshine for him. Rabbi Nehemiah said for that wicked one, the holy blessed one would make the sunshine. Rather, it teaches that he gave him leprosy. As you read, you shall believe the second sign. Interestingly, again, drawing us back to the story of Moshe. This pasuk is actually said by God to Moshe. Rav said he gave him a dog. That's my personal favorite. Alternatively, he grew him a horn. Alternatively, he made him a symbol for murderers. Alternatively, he made him a symbol for repenters. Our Midrash leaves off, what does it mean that God gave Cain a sign? 
it offers us several options. And then it says, no, 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 that's not what the text means. When the text says, it doesn't mean God gave Cain a sign. It means God made Cain into a sign. God made Cain into a sign, into a paradigm. And like in the beginning, when we asked, when we talked about what do we associate with Cain, the first option of what God made Cain a sign for was mur is murders. The second, though, is God makes Cain into a sign, into a paradigm for those who would repent, those who do repent. Let's take reactions to this text. Gary Goldberg says the issue is the meaning of oat is in the eye of the interpreter. The meaning of the sign is in the mind of the interpreter. How the interpreter views the significance of the sign. That's very interesting. And I think is especially relevant for this midrash, which struggles to make sense out of Cain himself, Cain being the sign. Margot Wolfson confuses me, when did Cain do tshuva? I think that this Midrash is reading that one line by Cain, my sin is too much to bear, as Cain's tshuva. Cain is crying out, what I've done is so great that I actually cannot bear it. God, help me, I, I can't bear what I have done. And those, I think, for the Midrash are the first stirrings of tshuva. Rhonda Arkin, that makes a lot more sense than a physical sign, which would be seen and understood by whom? What other humans were in this world? Always the question. Andrew Pepperstone, Kyan committing the ultimate crime and still doing tshuva gives me hope for everyone. Had it been a lesser crime, it would have left higher level sinners wondering if there would be any hope for them. Great, we're going to come back to that. Let's see. Oh. I'm loving all the responses coming in. I don't know if we'll be able to get to all of them. I'll try to read a few more. Libby Khan, was Kyan sorry he killed his brother or was he sorry he was caught? I think that's why we have two such different views in the Midrash. Is Kyan lying? Is Kyan trying to present himself as repentant, but actually he's only sorry he get, got caught? Or is Kyan actually the ultimate model of repentance? Howard White, repentance gets placed in the very beginning of the Torah. This makes it basic. Great, we're going to come back to that. Paul Jenner asks an interesting question. It strikes me that Adam, did, that Adam did not repent. Rather, he tried to hide. But Cain did repent. How did he know to do it? That's fascinating, and I've never seen anyone touch that question before. I would love to hear people's thoughts. Let's open the text back up to remind us we are faced still with a few questions. Why that song? What does that song have to do with Cain's sin? Again, we have the pun on to confess or to offer praise. Is that really everything that that psalm is giving us? And what is the text trying to say when it says that it was written by Adam and then forgotten and rediscovered by Moshe. And to understand a little bit more, I think we have to go to what is probably the most obvious and powerful moment of tshuva in the Torah. We're going to Shmot 34. 
And this is what happens after God has forgiven the Jewish people for their most blatant sin, the one that we that we imagine that we repent for year after year on Yom Kippur. This is after the sin of the golden calf. Just to remind ourselves of the sequence of events, Moshe is coming down the mountain with the tablets, the luchot, and he's met by what? He's met by the people committing the ultimate sin, committing the sin of the golden calf. Moshe smashes the luchot, and God is determined to wipe out the people. What we have in that moment when Moshe begs for forgiveness for the people in our tradition for 40 days and 40 nights is the basis for our model of tshuva ever, forevermore. Our Yom Kippur davening is based on the way that Moshe pleads for forgiveness. And we understand traditionally in the rabbinic tradition, part of what we're doing every year on Yom Kippur is both revisiting that moment of divine forgiveness and also repenting each year for a little part of the stain of the sin of the golden calf that still is with us. Where we're jumping in here is the moment where, Moshe, where God actually tells Moshe, you are forgiven so much so that I will actually give you a second set of tablets. Let's jump in. The Lord said to Moshe, Carve two tablets of stone like the first, and I will inscribe upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you shattered. Be ready by morning, and in the morning, come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one else shall come up with you, and no one else shall be seen anywhere on the mountain. Neither shall the flocks and the herds graze at the foot of the mountain. So Moshe carved two tablets of stone like the first, and early in the morning he went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, taking the two stone tablets with him. The Lord came down in a cloud. He stood with him there and proclaimed the name, Lord, these are the Shoshet the, that we traditionally recite during Slichot and Yom Kippur Davening. Hashem, Hashem, Arachum Duchanun, you can follow along in the English. Arachapan, Rav Chesed, Vianet, Nosar Chesed, La Alfim, Nose Avon, Bapesha, Bachatav, and Akelo in Ake, Hokeda Vot, Avonavot, Albanim, Baalbane, Banim, Baal Shosham, Baalibain. I want to draw our attention first to a particular part of these, of these Midot of God that Moshe is responding, these traits of God that Moshe is reciting. Because part of the text should be very familiar to you here from something we just saw. Here we have the phrase, no say, sorry, let's just find it, no say avon. If Cain's response to God was, my sin is too much to bear. Here what we have in, the, in Moshe's recital is God who bears sin. It's the same words, generations and generations apart. God is Moshe is reminding God of that truth that Cain discovered all those years ago. My sin is too much for me to bear, but it is not too much for you to bear, God. Let's continue and see a few more, I think, links in the text that will help us understand the connection between 
Moshe and Cain, why we say that the Psalm was written by, by Adam and rediscovered by Moshe all those years later. Let's jump ahead. And he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He ate no bread and drank no water, and he wrote down on the tablets the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So Moshe came down from Mount Sinai. And as Moshe came down from the mountain, bearing the two tablets of the pact, Moshe was not aware that the skin of his face was radiant since he had spoken with him. This should also be sparking a memory of the Midrash. And this is tricky. This is tricky because it's the same translation mistake that happens in translations of the Bible all the way through the Middle Ages, and I believe is first corrected in the Renaissance in the Christian tradition. Those are the words kikaran or panaf. His skin was radiant. What did, what was one of the signs that the Midrash said God gave to Cain? Said that God gave Cain a horn. The word, the word karen can mean both here radiant and also can be translated as horn. That's why you have the famous paintings of Moshe actually with little horns, or I'm sorry, the famous sculpture of Moshe actually with horns. The Midrash is actually in saying that that's one of the signs maybe that Cain gave, that God gave to Cain in the wake of his chupa, very deliberately drawing us here again. The Midrash is giving us key words, pay attention. The word chupa the word Moshe, the word Karen, linking us textually to these, to these two stories together. Let's see why. Or let's see how one way that we can make sense of why. Aaron and all the Israelites saw that the skin of Moshe's face was radiant and they shrank from coming near him. But Moshe called to them and Aaron and all the chieftains in the assembly returned to him and Moshe spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near, and he instructed them concerning all that the Lord had imparted to him on Mount Sinai. Let's skip ahead to verse 1, and I've highlighted where we're skipping ahead. I'll read it first in the Hebrew and then in the English. What happens immediately after the moment of Chuba? For... In our story of Cain and Adam, what happens immediately after the moment of Chuva, according to the Midrash, is Cain teaching his father about Chuva, and then Adam, re Adam writing this Mizmor, this psalm, Mizmor Shirliom HaShabbat, a psalm for the Sabbath day, Tov Lahodot Lashem, it is good to praise God. What happens immediately after the ultimate moment of Chuva? In Moshe's lifetime, the ultimate moment of tshuva in the story of the Jewish people, where Moshe comes down the mountain with the second tablets and we find out that we have been forgiven. Moshe then convoked the whole Israelite community and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. On six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your settlements on the Sabbath day. The first mitzvah that we get when we know that we are forgiven is actually the mitzvah of Shabbat. 
and Rashi hammers that, home, that point for, home for us. Let's look at Rashi. Moshe ben convoked by Akel Moshe on the day after the Day of Atonement when he came down from the mountain. When do we get Shabbat for the second time? We get Shabbat for the second time immediately after we are forgiven. Let's stop for a moment and draw some strands together. Why is it so important for the Midrash to tell us that the, that the psalm that Adam wrote was this psalm, the psalm that's in praise of the Sabbath day? Why is it so important for the Midrash to tell us that Adam wrote it originally and then it was lost and, and found again in the days of Moshe? Because the Midrash knows the Torah. The Midrash knows that the primary source for tshuva in the Torah is the moment of our national shattering. It's the moment of Chet HaEgel. It's the moment of the sin of the golden calf. And it's the moment that should be surprising to us when we read the Torah, when we are actually forgiven. The fact that Moshe comes down the mountain with a second set of luchot should be just as surprising to us when we read the Torah as the fact that Cain had been forgiven was to Adam when he finds out for the first time. And by drawing us here to this moment of that moment of forgiveness and hammering us over the head with Mizmor Sher Liyom HaShabbat, the first mitzvah that we get right after we are forgiven on a national level. Maybe part of the, what the Midrash is doing is saying, the Jewish people in Cain are not so different. What we both are at the end of the day, you look at maybe on the surface, what do we think of when we think of the Jewish people, God's chosen people, people with mitzvot. What do we think of on the surface when we first think of Cain, a murderer rejected by God? Actually, at the end of the day, perhaps we're the same. Perhaps what we actually both are at the end of the day are forgiven sinners, people who've done the worst possible thing and then done tshuva, people who did things that I think to many of us are absolutely unimaginable and then woke up the next day and went on. Let's open up the text again and finish off. And again, I encourage people to keep responding in the chat. I won't be able to read while I'm talking, but all of you should definitely read and respond to each other. This is from the Shem Mishmuel, who writes a commentary on the weekly parsha. It's actually one of the most massive, it's a Hasidic commentary. It's absolutely massive. Very few parts of it have been translated into English, but highly recommend if you're ever looking for someone new to study. Here, the Shema Shmuel is talking about cities of refuge, specifically um, about Moshe establishing them and about the direction in which they are established. Let's jump in. Why does Rashi attach significance to the Torah identifying the direction where Moshe established the cities of refuge for unintentional killers as towards the sunrise, eastward, when there was no alternative? They had not crossed the Jordan. Of course they were established eastward. They, that's the only direction that they have right now. 
the Shin Mishmuel is noticing that that Rashi makes symbolic meaning of that. But why? What, what is it about eastward that Rashi is seizing on? And here's what the Shin Mishmuel says. The cities of refuge contain a deep teaching about starting over. By ending someone else's life, the unintentional killer's own existence is removed, and he has to seek a new life. Conventional repentance, where one returns to one's original status prior to the sin, is not available to him. The capacity to start over again anew is what the cities of refuge provide. This is one of the special qualities of Shabbat as well. The Or HaChaim explains that creation can only be sustained until Shabbat. Each Shabbat, creation is renewed again for the following week. Thus, each Shabbat represents a starting over again. That is the message of going towards the east, towards sunrise. The city of refuge is all about starting over again with a new day ushered in by sunrise. That is why Adam and Cain were sent east of Eden. East of Eden is not merely a den of iniquity, but the opportunity for tikkun and to start a life. The Shemi Shmuel here is offering a vision of what Shabbat is about. And I think by doing that, offering a vision of part of what it means to be Jewish. Why are the city of refuge, why are the cities of refuge established eastward? Because there's some some sins that there are actually no coming back from. Someone pointed out, how can you how can Cain actually be forgiven for this? Hevel isn't there to forgive him. He can't bring Hevel back to life. And the Shem Mishmuel would say, you're right. He can't bring Hevel back to life. There is no going back from this. There's only going forward. But the going forward is possible. And the Shem Mishmuel says that's why these cities are established towards the east. Because that's where the sun rises. And there's another place where we can learn about that. And that's from Shabbat. What is Shabbat about? It's actually about creation restarting itself each week. It's actually about being able to create anew every single week. That is what it means to be a Baal Tshuva. That is what it means to be someone who has repented. And I would say if we're reading this in conversation with the with God giving Shabbat after Moshe comes down from the mountain with the second set of Luchot, that's what it means to be a Jew. To be a Jew, to be a member of the nation that committed the sin of the golden calf and was forgiven and commemorates after that the mitzvah that we were given immediately after Shabbat every week is to be someone who believes that even when it is not possible to go back, even when it is not possible to put the pieces back together, it is still possible to move forward. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and Sam Greenberg and edited by Evan Feist. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It has been a pleasure to learn with you. <laughs>